Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Jacqueline Cooper and Michael Cunningham. Hello. Hi, everybody. Today, we're talking about the 11th prompt in the Books and Bites reading challenge, a nonfiction book about something you're curious about. This prompt is pretty open, so as long as it's nonfiction, whatever sparks your curiosity is fair game. And since we are almost finished with this year's reading challenge, let me just remind everyone that you can turn in your entry forms during the month of December, either in person at the library or on our website. If you completed 10 out of 12 of the prompts, you can enter to win either a Kindle paperweight or a $100 gift card to Joseph Beth Booksellers. So can y'all believe that we're on the 11th prompt already? No. This year has flown by. (laughs) It has. (laughs) So this prompt is basically nonfiction about whatever you're curious about. Guess we can kind of guess that Michael reads true crime nonfiction. Got it. (laughs) Do you ever (laughs) venture out into other topics? Yeah, I have. I've read over the past couple of years, I read a few memoirs mm-hmm. and a couple biographies that I've really enjoyed. But yeah, I do read a lot of the darker nonfiction stuff for the most part. What about you, Jacqueline? I don't, yeah, I realize I don't read a lot of nonfiction. I did study literature, so I kind of was working on a master's in English. So literary analysis is always kind of still fascinating for me. So I chose to do a literary analysis this time. But thinking about it now, I could have done something on cats or something. (laughs) Only I thought about that. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I thought you would have for sure done a cat book. I thought about doing My Cat Spit McGee, but I was afraid that was too much of a biography rather than a nonfiction. That's nonfiction. Yeah. Biography is nonfiction. Would that have counted? Yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Darn it. <laughs> <laughs> the nonfiction I tend to favor is often narrative, you know, in, in nature, or tells a good story, even if it's, you know, history or biography. But I also really like reading about the natural world and That's where my book for today falls in. So without further ado, we can go ahead and start talking about our books. All right. So my book is The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonder of Consciousness by Cy Montgomery. I had no idea that octopuses were so interesting until I first heard a podcast interview with Cy Montgomery author of The Soul of an Octopus. When I told my husband about it, he challenged me to tell him eight, of course, eight (laughs) octopus facts that I'd learned during the episode. Much to my surprise, I managed to rattle them off during our evening walk. Don't you love it when you learn something without realizing that you're learning? Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's the best. I checked out Montgomery's book soon after and learned even more about these amazing creatures. Montgomery didn't know much about octopuses herself when she first spent time with an octopus named Athena at the New England Aquarium, but she knew enough to want to know more about these beings that seem, quote, completely alien, unquote. 
She began making regular visits to the New England Aquarium, where she befriended the staff, volunteers, and yes, the octopuses. She also learned how to scuba dive so she could experience octopuses in the wild. The Soul of an Octopus reads like a narrative, but it's full of fascinating facts. Did you know, for instance, that an octopus, quote, can weigh as much as a man and stretch as long as a car, yet it can pour its baggy, boneless body through an opening the size of an orange? Unquote. Wow. (laughs) They truly are. If you've seen, was it Finding Nemo, where there's an octopus? Is that Hank? I think so. Finding Nemo. Yes, that is based on fact. Octopuses can escape out of the tiniest openings. Did you know that they can change color and that a red octopus is excited while a white octopus is relaxed? That they are smart enough to play with toys and even bounce balls? But what I love most about this book is that although you do get a lot of great octopus facts, you also get to know the different personalities of the octopuses. Montgomery comes to know them as individuals, and in return, the octopuses get to know the humans, expressing their affection and, on occasion, their dislike. So octopuses, just like humans, they like some humans better than others. (laughs) Mm. And, you know, they didn't always know why, but an octopus would just have a dislike for one of the keepers and splash it all of the time when it came near it. And then a lot of times they use their suckers on their arms to taste, and that's how they interact with people. And there was also this incident where one of the volunteers was really sad. One of her friends had died, and an octopus gave it a hug. Oh, wow. (laughs) Or gave her, gave the volunteer a hug. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) So it's pretty amazing how, I mean, she really does get to the soul of these Mm -hmm. creatures. And even the wild octopuses have personality when they're scuba diving. I think they mainly were doing this in Mexico. There was this one wild octopus that was sort of acting like a tour guide, like, hey, guys, follow me, and showed them around (laughs) his territory. That's cool. (laughs) So Montgomery's book really challenges the reader to reconsider animal consciousness and intelligence. It also opens your eyes to the connections that are possible between humans and animals, connections beyond the more familiar cat and dog pet relationships. And there are some people that keep octopuses as pets, but they are very high maintenance because they are so smart. Mm -hmm. The book is well-written, engaging, and thought-provoking. Even if you weren't curious about octopuses before, I suspect you will be once you start reading The Soul of an Octopus. Given that this book is about the soul of an octopus, eating an octopus is definitely out of the question. No calamari. (laughs) No calamari. Though I should also perhaps note as a last fact that octopuses have no qualms about eating uh, eating each other on occasion. (laughs) 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 There is octopus cannibalism. Wow. 
But since we're talking about the souls of creatures, let's skip all seafood and go straight for a beverage. And I think you should pair this book with flowering or blooming tea. These teas are made of dried tea leaves wrapped around an edible flower. When they steep, the leaves unfurl in the water to reveal a blossom. Watching the teas bloom is supposed to be relaxing, hopefully as relaxing as watching an octopus swim. We ordered some to try and we'll report back on the experience. I've never heard of this before. Yeah. That sounds, sounds pretty good. cool. Yeah, we, we thought we would try it and film it and see, see how it turns out. <laughs> we just haven't be... gotten it yet, but but we will report back. Yeah, that sounds like a lot. I think it'll be a lot of fun mm -hmm. to do that. I did have an octopus question, though. Okay. I saw this on Facebook. I don't know if it's true. Mm -hmm. That octopus octopuses will reach out and smack other fish out of spite. <laughs> yes, I they that is true. I mean, there was even like she talked about in the book, some of the octopuses were in tanks with big sharks and the octopuses sort of ran the show. <laughs> wow. <That's, laughs> yeah. I've heard they were like more intelligent than even human beings, which No, I think we don't really understand their mm -hmm. intelligence because they're so inaccessible, you know, unless they're in captivity. But I mean, the fact they have a brain in each arm, you know, so they have nine brains. I wow. Did not know that. I didn't know that wow. either. That's, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I highly recommend this book. I know a lot of people really got into octopuses after watching My Octopus Teacher, which I think is on Netflix. I haven't watched it yet. I've heard it's really good, but I know that something sad happens at the oh, end, oh. <laughs> so oh, I have yeah. kind of avoided watching it. Oh, Octopuses, even in captivity, they don't have a very long lifespan, so there are also some octopus deaths in the soul of an octopus, <laughs> but I did not, mm. you know. They were sad, but there's just so much joy in being around the octopuses that I think everyone... You know, that's just something you kind of have to accept as to going along with it. It's true. We often are, we lose our pets and things after, you know, maybe sometimes we just get to have them like 10 years or so. So mm -hmm. it's hard. Mm -hmm. I think that is one reason I didn't pick an animal book, too. A lot of animal books, the animals, you know, they don't live all that long. So then I get all sad. So. <laughs> <laughs> But this book sounds fascinating. It yeah. really does. I chose to read Sherlock Holmes Was Wrong, Reopening the Case of the Hound of Baskerville by Pierre Bayard as my nonfiction choice for this month's Books and Bites. The author, Pierre Bayard, is a professor of French literature at the University of Paris 8 and a psychoanalysis. The book was originally written in French and, of course, has been trans translated to English. The author uses literary analysis of the novel to examine The Hound of Baskerville by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He claims that a close reading of the text will prove that Sherlock Holmes' accusation against the murderer in the novel is wrong. Bayard begins his book with a recap of the novel of The Hound of Baskerville, which is particularly useful if you've not read this story in a while. As a refresher, the story is set in dark 
more in Devonshire, England, in a nearby Grimpen Mire. And according to the local legend, a spectral hound haunts the moors due to a curse placed upon any descendant who inherits Baskerville Hall. The curse began with Hugo Baskerville, who made a deal with the devil to capture a woman who had escaped from him that he was going to do some nefarious things with. I don't really know for sure. But the hound turns on Hugo, killing him and the woman. And according to the legend, when a hound is heard howling, he's howling for the blood of a Baskerville and its descendants. When the superstitious Sir Charles Baskerville inherits Baskerville Hall, he believes he's in danger from the hound. And he's so terrified of the legend that he takes off running when he sees the black, large black dog. Later, it is rumored he died because he was so frightened when he saw the hound he had a heart attack. The hound is howling during the night. And a man who is actually escaped convict is found later the next day at the bottom of the cliff. Locals say they saw a hound roaming the moors. Holmes deduces that the man died because the hound was pursuing him and he was wearing the clothes of Sir Henry, the current owner of Baskerville Hall, who gave his cast off clothing to the criminal. And therefore, the chase caused him to fall off the cliff because he was being he thought he was being pursued by the hound. Next time the hound is seen, he is seen running across the moors and is shot by Holmes. When the hound is shot, he turns and then attacks Sir Henry Baskerville. The hound and his owner are condemned as the murders of Sir Charles and the convict. So in the next section of the book, Bayard discusses detective criticism and how useful it is to uncover mistakes made by fictional detective. He asserts that many detectives, just like in real life, condemn the wrong person. And he discusses methods that detectives often use to solve fictional crimes. He gives examples that show some of the fallacies of these methods. He also claims that he can prove that Hercule Perot misidentified the murderer and the murder of Roger Ackroyd. He argues that this detective criticism can help clear Lots of innocence of wrongdoings. Quote, in literature as in life, true criminals often elude the investigators and allow secondary characters to be accused and condemned in its passion for justice. Detective criticism commits itself to discovering the truth. If it is unable to arrest the guilty parties, at least it can clear the names of the innocent. End quote. Bayard goes on to explain that Sherlock Holmes was wrong about the murder in the, the hand of the Baskerville as well. He claims one reason is that Holmes often uses probabilities rather than facts to solve his cases, and he has been wrong in several of his cases. Then the next section, Bayard uses his psychoanalysis aspect of his career to analyze and examine Doyle's feelings about his characters. Bayard claims that fictional characters often become real to the author and the readers. And he goes into detail how literary characters seem to take on a life of their own. The line in a letter to his mother, he's telling her that Holmes is keeping him from working on other things. So when Doyle becomes tired of writing about Holmes, he tries to kill off his characters. But the public was so upset that the outcry was so phenomenal that they had to bring the character back. And he's just hounded into bringing Holmes back from death, and he did not die. So he didn't die in the story after all. But Bayard claims that Doyle was so distraught at having to bring Holmes back that he did not write Holmes as a brilliant detective in this novel. Therefore, he didn't keep Holmes true to his original character. 
Lastly, Bayard goes on to explain that Sherlock Holmes was wrong in the case because Doyle was blurring the lines between fact and fiction and making Holmes no longer a dependable character. He also claims that Dr. Watson is not a reliable narrator. According to Bayard, Dr. Watson's credibility is often called into question. He's calling it into question. Bayard goes on to offer his solutions to who he thinks really committed the murder. And I think this is the one of the most interesting part of the book because it's he gives a really very plausible account of the crime and he explains many of the questions in the story and, and holes that are left. And But I won't give any spoilers to that in case anyone wants to read it. But I would recommend this book to anyone fascinated by detective fiction or interested in literary criticism. Bayard shows us that we should not only read the text, but we should also question any inaccuracies. And most of this book is set in the evening, and it's on a wet and windy moor. So I thought a nice hearty bowl of beans would make an excellent pairing. So I found a, cl- a pretty yummy-looking recipe at thecleverMeal.com of white bean soup. I love a bean soup on a cold <laughs> day. <laughs> yeah. I always want chili when it starts to get cold or some mm-hmm. kind of bean soup or something. I like chili. Mm-hmm. The author of the book, I mean, it sounds like he's arguing, making arguments about, like, does he think these characters are real? And like, <laughs> does he think the authors were wrong in the solution that yeah. they give I, i'm i'm a little confused about the premise yeah he he thought he claims that fictional characters often become real to us as the reader and to the writer as well because they take on their own life and so like when you read like when i read breaking dawn twilight and all and that series midnight sun i mean edward did become like alive to me. And I was like, in a way, we do blur the lines between fiction and and nonfiction. I, I think as a reader, there was a, a case where this, there was a, years ago, there was a telenovel. It was in Spanish, but I believe it was in Spanish, but the characters got married and like all these people sent them wedding gifts <laughs> because... And I mean, they like they really got married, even though they, of course, it was just a fictional account. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I I think that, and I think for, I think he's saying for Holmes, like this character has just become so big that he has a life of his own, and he can't, he has to write about him, and maybe he doesn't, he doesn't want to write about him. He wants to do other projects, and he's stuck writing about Holmes because he the the Conan Doyle is stuck writing about Holmes because he's been pressured into it by the his public, by his his publishers and, and things like that. So he's not happy with his character. So Bayard argues that, you know, he didn't write him as he didn't stick to his true character nature because he kind of wrote him he didn't really like his character as much as he used to. Sort of, I guess. And then the what was your you asked about the other question? Well it sounds like he's arguing with the authors of the of the books because they're the ones who are <laughs> creating the mystery and then sol- solving the mystery not their 
yeah, characters. He, yeah, and he does. He he says that the that Holmes got it completely wrong that who he accused of Stapleton was the person he accused of being the murderer. And he basically says there's no proof, there's no facts to back up that Holmes didn't back up anything. He just said, well, this is probably who did it because circumstantial evidence and stuff like that. But he goes on to prove, I don't want to spoil the book, but he goes on to prove that, well, he sets up a pretty good argument for a, a case against it being someone else and that neither neither Holmes or Watson are reliable characters. So I don't, you know, a literary analysis is, is it can be a lot of things. If they take a lot of uh, literature, English literature professors take a lot of. They borrow a lot from other other disciplines, like theories and facts and things. Like they borrow from psychology, and they'll borrow from history and just different theories to attach to their their claims. Mm-hmm. This month, I chose a book about a topic that I've always been pretty curious about, and I think most people are too, whether they admit it or not, and that is cults. And that's why I chose to read Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism by Amanda Montel, a book I've seen recommended on social media over and over again. This book does discuss the dark death cults like the People's Temple in Jonestown and Heaven's Gate, but it really focuses more on the language these leaders use to get people to buy into what they're trying to sell. And it's not just these cults that use it either. You see the same kind of language used in MLMs, multi-level marketing companies like Mary Kay, and fitness groups like SoulCycle and CrossFit. And when you really think about it, as the author points out, the word cult has been thrown around so much that it could almost describe anything. So she uses the word cultish to describe this cult-like language. And some of the linguistic tactics these cultish groups use, from Jim Jones to your local CrossFit coach, are things you probably have all experienced in some form in our lives, like confirmation bias, which is a reasoning flaw we have as humans, where we tend to look for, interpret, accept, and remember information in a way that validates our existing beliefs, while ignoring anything that challenges them. Another is love bombing, the showing of attention and affection in order to influence or manipulate people. There's also the us versus them rhetoric and the thought-terminating cliches, which we've all used at some point, like, It could have been worse, or don't worry, be happy. And the ever-popular, everything happens for a reason, to stop an argument or to stop cognitive dissidence. This book also busts some myths about cults. For example, she kind of blew my mind when the author discusses the people who get involved in the first place. Most people read about cults and say, that would never happen to me. Not so fast. According to the research, most people who get involved with cults are not low-IQ, desperate people, but are typically the more idealistic, optimistic, and intelligent folk. Jim Jones, the leader of the People's Temple, started it as a very progressive church with ties to civil rights leaders like Angela Davis before it devolved into the tragedy Jonestown. One thing I thought was interesting she briefly discusses is the ubiquitous phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid, and where it came from and how it's actually quite offensive and grotesque. And something she does point out often in the book is that not all cults are evil. The vast majority are not involved in any criminal activity, in that it is, quote, in our DNA to want to believe in something, to feel something, alongside other people seeking that's the same 
and that there is a way to speak cultish all the while staying tethered to re- reality, unquote. If you've ever been interested in cults and how people get involved with them presented in a really accessible way, I highly recommend this book. We have it available in our adult nonfiction collection, and it is also currently available as an ebook through Hoopla Digital. I paired this with my favorite fall beverage, Schlafly Beers Pumpkin Ale, a beer that has a huge following. I look forward all year to this beer being released. It's well-balanced, not too hoppy, not too malty, with notes of caramel and ginger infused with spice notes of cinnamon, clove, and note bag, tasting like a slice of pumpkin pie in a pint glass. Interesting choice of beverage. Yes, <laughs> yeah. You could say it has like a pretty cult following. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds like an out of uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but that's not a true crime novel. That no. It's, I mean, no, true crime book. It's more like sociology or. Yeah. Hmm. And did she talk about like how politics sometimes seems cultish now? Yeah, she does. There is where she, she goes in a towards the end of the book, especially the QAnon stuff mm. and how culty that is and how, where it all kind of came from online mm-hmm. and how it just spirals and evolved over time. And, you know, mm-hmm. what else, you know, she talks about the Scientology stuff and, you know, of course, Jonestown and mm-hmm. Heaven's Gate, but also, you know, CrossFit and Soul Cycle and, it's all very interesting just that, you know, we use this language on a daily basis, but it's just about how far do you go with it and what are, I guess, almost like what are the motives behind it? Mm-hmm. Like her father, who's her father, was involved in Synanon, which was like this oppressive cult. And he was a scientist. So, I mean, it's it just anybody can get involved with these things anytime. So did she have a definition of what a cult is? I'm just curious, like, because, yeah, there's cultish, where it's yeah. not really a cult, but it's she has more like a, It's like more a like a spectrum. Okay. I, I guess what is considered a cult, because, you know, she brings up, we use it so much, like, oh, you know, like a cult following for this movie, or, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I'm in the the yoga cult or something. So she examines it from more like on a spectrum from like, you know, everyday use, what we use to, you know, whatever the tea cold or, you know, one of the yoga or mm-hmm. all the way to, you know, Jim Jones. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty big spectrum. Yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is where, you know, it's just you, you kind of innocuous everyday language we use and or even on the job, you know, like a lot of businesses will use that culty language where. It's, it's specific to that building. You know, we have our jargon that we use specifically mm-hmm. for, you know, like we use it, like when I worked at a grocery store, we had our own jargon that only we knew. We, you know, we have it here too that mm-hmm. no one is going to know besides us or library workers. So mm-hmm. hmm. it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting book. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. For more information about the Books and Bites reading challenge, visit our website at justpublib.org forward slash books hyphen bites. Our theme music is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. 
Find out more about Scott and his music on his website, adoreforadesk.com.